Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name's Shad. I'm a physician and a Harvard MBA and a co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky Therapeutics. And my name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And now I'm building Sky Therapeutics with Shad. Our guest today is Zubin Daruwala. He is the PwC Singapore Health Industries Leader and sits on PwC's Global Health Leadership Team. He is also a co-founder of HeruX. He has delivered over 100 talks and presentations, including multiple keynotes in more than 12 countries and across five continents. After graduating with honors from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland in 2005, Zubin commenced and continued his practice of medicine in Dublin. He subsequently pursued a career in orthopedic surgery and was awarded the membership of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland in 2008, followed by a master's in orthopedic surgery in 2010. Named one of the most influential and emerging voices in the global health industry in 2021, and a top 50 most influential voices of healthcare in 2022, he hopes to help bridge the gap between the technical and clinical sides within the realm of digital health and medicine. Zubin, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, guys. Nice to be here today. Great. Well, I'm really excited about the conversation. You know, Zubin, you've had a successful and colorful career so far, and I'd love to start the conversation with, you know, your story chronologically. So I think you were born in Bombay and uh, moved very early with your family to Singapore. Uh, You're born to a Parsi family and to the audience out there, Parsis are a minority Persian ethno-religious group. And and I understand that there is less than 100,000 Parsis in the world today and about 500 in Singapore. You know, very interesting history there. And I've read that you attributed some of your entrepreneurial spirit to this community and that your late father was a prominent surgeon and the founder of the Dyslexia Association of Singapore. And he was also a big role model for you. So I'd love to start there. What was it like growing within a minority community in Singapore? And how did your childhood and family help build the person you are today? And and essentially, what made you eventually take the decision to go into medical school and ultimately into business? Sure. Well, well first of all, thanks again for having me here. Um, a few questions there, uh, Alex. Uh, in terms of my career, uh, colorful, yes, I'd agree. Successful, I'm not sure uh, how we define success. But I mean, let's let's start with, with the community that you mentioned. So you're right, I, I am part of a minority community, the Parsi community. Uh, there are less than 500 of us in Singapore today. Um, I guess... At the heart of it, our community has always been about giving back, uh, right? So the Parsis always believe in giving back to the community, Uh, not just our Parsi community, as in the broader community, right? And if you look at Parsis uh, globally, we have a very rich history of business, entertainment, and a big, big uh, part is also philanthropy. And I mean, I'll just call out a couple of names that you may or may not realize are are Parsis, right? So if we look globally and in India, the Tata Group um, was was a Parsi founder. Freddie Mercury, who we all know from Queen, he was actually Parsi. Um, His name was Farooq Balsara. And even in Singapore locally, from a philanthropic point of view, 
um, our Singapore General Hospital, which is one of the biggest hospitals, actually has a wing called the Mystery Wing. And that was donated by a family friend of ours, father, uh, in the early days uh, of Singapore to, to build that. So I guess growing up as that kind of minority in Singapore, um, it was good and bad, right? You know how kids can be, uh, I'm sure, wherever we are in the world when you're a minority, right? But at the end of the day, I would say my experience as a minority group in Singapore was generally really, really good. Um, and I, I always talk about this, actually, from a Singapore perspective. Uh, you know, we have our national uh, anthem and a pledge. And in that pledge, the Singapore pledge, we talk about uh, there's a line that goes, you know, regardless of race, language or religion. And I think that kind of environment in Singapore really teaches mutual respect. It teaches people to work together, especially when, when the men, when we go and serve our national service, when we turn 18 or thereabouts, right? It teaches you to work together. It doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't know your background. And I think that is a big, big part of who I am today, just because of that mix, um, right? Now, if we talk about why medical school and ultimately business, uh, that, that's what you asked there, right? From a medical school perspective, I was actually the youngest of three boys and my late father dissuaded all of us <laughs> from, from doing medicine. Um, I think he saw the future. He, he, was, uh, he, he really did predict many things in medicine and surgery way before his time. And he always felt that medicine and the joy that you get from practicing it was going to be very different in our generation. So he dissuaded all of us and, you know, my two elder brothers, uh, they didn't do medicine. I was the only fool who didn't listen, uh, you know, but he was absolutely right in many ways. But while he dissuaded us, um, he also did say that if you really want to do it, Zubin, you know, um, you will not be rich, but you will be very happy. Um, and what I saw from him uh, growing up, right? As far as I can remember, I think I was probably about four when I said, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon when I grow up, right? Um, I mean, my two-year-old says that I want to be a doctor when I grow up so I can tell everybody what to do. Uh, it's a little bit funny, uh, but um, I always remember wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. And the reason was because the I saw an unparalleled satisfaction in what my dad did. Right. And when I used to ask him about his job, he used to say that, right, that, you know, the joy that I get, I don't believe I will get in any other career. And when I saw him come home, even when he was tired and frustrated or upset, you know, with uh, with something that might have gone wrong, he was very, very happy and satisfied in his career. And that's what I took from it. Right. So ultimately, I decided, you know what, I want to I want to go into medical school and then if you ask, you know, what made you go into business? I guess the first thing that I want to say is I don't really consider it a business. Um, a lot of my friends and colleagues said, oh, you're moving to the darker side. You're going to the corporate side. Um, I don't think or at least I don't practice uh, it as a business. You know, a, a doctor in Singapore more than 20 years ago, when I did my epidemiology project in medical school on the Singapore healthcare system, he, he said something to me that has become one of my favorite quotes. And the quote he said was, it's tough, this healthcare business, or maybe it's tough because we're treating healthcare as a business. 
And that really struck with me, right? And and kind of has molded me into to what I do and how, how I work. Ultimately, I suppose everything is a business, right? Um, you know, you can be as idealistic as you like, but at the end of the day, everyone needs to make money, no matter how, uh, you know, simple a life you want to lead, you know, you need to pay the bills, you need to buy food, you need to you know, buy clothes. So ultimately, everything is a kind of business. But the way I kind of work and the message I took from that quote was, you know what, whenever I do whatever I do, let's not look at it from a business angle. So I hope that makes makes sense to you. I mean, ultimately, I, I wanted to make a difference. I've always wanted to make a difference uh, to society and to help people. And as cliche as that sounds, um, you know, I realized that as a doctor, you or we only help one patient at a time, right? Regardless of our specialty. And I continue to do that. So I still practice medicine. It's not something I want to give up completely. Uh, I don't operate, but I, I do do clinics and, and general clinics as well, right? Um, but I wanted to make a bigger difference. And I realized that you can only do that outside of clinical practice, right? At a systems level, um, at a government level. Uh, and hence, I decided to make that switch. Thank you, Zubin. I think when you were describing your father, it reminded me of my own father, who's also an ENT surgeon. And so he's 60-something now, and he still truly enjoys doing ear surgeries that are like six to eight hours. And it is something that is so integral to him. And as you were talking about you know, one of the reasons why you went into medicine was because you saw that joy. It kind of reminded me of, of my experience. I was kind of reflecting was the fact that I was seeing that and my father, part of my decision to go into medical school. But no, I really appreciate the reflections there. I think that's very powerful. You know, shifting gears a bit to after medical school, you spent a few years doing medical and surgical training in both Dublin and Oxford. And then you immediately returned to Singapore to start your journey in orthopedic surgery. And I've read that during this period, you've started working with MyDoc, which is a digital health platform that's targeted for healthcare services and, and improving kind of patient experience. So I'm curious to know, you know, what sparked your interest in digital health and MyDoc specifically, and how all of that kind of led you to your career in, in PwC? <laughs> that, that's an interesting question and one I get asked by, by many medical students and, and others, right? Um to be honest, it was quite random, actually, if I, if I were to be completely truthful. Um, I guess, let me start a little bit before my doc. Um, unknowingly, throughout my career in Dublin and Oxford, but more so in Dublin, because that's where I spent 12, 13 years uh, you know, of med school and training, uh, I was always involved with um, kind of I guess if you want to call it innovative solutions or thinking outside the box and coming up with ideas, right? Now, 20 odd years ago, that wasn't really an accepted mindset, uh, you know, across the board, right? But I would always try to come up with solutions or do things. And as a result, so for example, when I was doing my research for my master's in Dublin, um, my research looked at shapes of collarbones or the clavicle, right? And a couple of med tech companies heard about it and then ended up speaking to me and ended up using my research for the development of a clavicle plate. Now, I got no royalties or any money from it. My, my research was used. My name was used. But 
I, I didn't get anything from it, right? So that was kind of maybe the first thing that uh, I remember. At around the same time, or maybe slightly before, uh, in the economic recession, I used a robot uh, to do ward rounds from home on the weekends in Ireland. And that was because the government said, can we try to save costs, you know, rather than going in and charging hours outside of office hours, what are other solutions? And so I did that and I published that. So all these kind of things, I was always kind of doing something on the tech side and I didn't realize, right? I just thought it was part of clinical practice. And then fast forward, when I moved back to Singapore in 2012, I say it was quite random because I ended up meeting an old schoolmate and actually an old army buddy who was in uh, the School of Military Medicine with me at the time when we were in the army. And he was actually one of the co-founders of MyDoc. And we met over a drink because he had moved back from London a year or two before me. And so we were just catching up on, you know, what the difference in culture and work environments are. And he said, hey, you know what? You've always been a bit creative and innovative. Can you come and help with MyDoc? Um, and so it was just an informal thing. It was, you know, I was like, yeah, sure. I got involved and then things just snowballed from there. You know, I started going to conferences, talks, um, you know, getting exposed to, to different things. And, and that's what I suppose triggered the kind of bigger interest in, in digital health. Right. But PWC specifically to, to ask your question, that's an even funnier story. And, it's interesting that it all started from a patient, actually. Um, and this patient uh, is a very good friend of mine now. And he's a freelance consultant. He's a doctor himself. And just in case anyone says, oh, privacy, he's completely agreed to say, you can use my name and, you know, you can talk about my case and what happened. And I do the same at conferences, actually. Um, so it's funny. His name's Mehdi, right? And um, he's half Turkish, if I recall correctly. Um, he was a freelance consultant. He left clinical medicine and he was in Singapore. He was a freelance consultant to the Ministry of Health. And he was on his bicycle cycling down a, a mountain, uh, on a mountain bike, and he flipped over and uh, sustained some lacerations and some injuries. And he came in and I was on call. I was the registrar on call. Um, and we needed to do, you know, he the most uh, significant injury was over his elbow, over, over the cubital fossa, right? This part of the elbow. And it needed a wound exploration and debridement and cleaning out in the operating theater. Now we were really busy and I get a call late at night or near midnight and I was in the operating theater. My intern's saying, you know, we have this patient who's really not happy with how long he's been waiting and he wants to know, uh, you know, what, what the story is. So I said, look, I'll come up and chat with him, right, when I'm done. So off I go after the case, go and I meet him and I'm like, you know, you're a doctor. You like, you know, you know how the hospitals work, right? And we chatted. I explained everything to him that there were some emergency cases that took priority, but that I'd get to him sometime that night. Operated on him, I don't know, three, four in the morning. And he went home that morning later around lunchtime. And we stayed in touch and we became friends. Because we did that and he was freelance consulting, one day when we met, he said, hey, I have a colleague whose former colleague works at PwC and is looking for a subject matter expert on a, a particular topic. I, I won't disclose the topic or company at, at you know over this uh, podcast, but uh, can you help? So I met 
this guy who ended up turning out to be my predecessor at PwC, right? And, you know, I he interviewed me and I, he got some insights about certain things uh, with a product in hospitals. And then we stayed in touch, right? And he said, hey, you know, you connected me with a lot of people. Have you ever thought about consulting? And I was like, no, what the hell is consulting, <laughs> right? And uh, then fast forward a couple of years go by, I start getting frustrated, um, you know, with the inability to change a system from within, I get back in touch with that chap and say, hey, you know, you you spoke about this. I explored a whole bunch of careers. I had a couple of offers from MedTech and Pharma and another consulting firm. And ultimately, I uh, I picked PwC because of the work that I saw them uh, doing globally uh, to make a difference. And hey, that's uh, that's it. So sorry, a bit long winded, but that's the whole story. Yeah, it's a very interesting one, Zubin. Thank you for sharing. You know, one of the things that come up very frequently in our conversations with guests is the randomness of these opportunities. They seem random, like on a face value, but somewhat they are intentional in the sense that, you know, a part of creating these opportunities is surrounding oneself with individuals who are very interesting from diverse career paths with diverse experiences who are basically hardworking and ambitious and creative thinking. And so essentially the goal here would be to maximize the chances of these value-creating interactions happening, it's like a chemical reaction, right? Like the more molecules you have there, the more there is a chance that a chemical reaction would happen. And I think this is one of the magical things about kind of my and, and Chad's experience during HBS, because, you know, you're a part of this community with many, many interesting individuals from a widely diverse set of experiences. So I just wanted to reflect on that point. And it's it's one that comes up frequently in our conversations. But no, it has been awesome. I, I really enjoyed my part of, of the interview. And I guess I'm up shifting gears and handing over to Chad for a couple of questions. No, thank you, Alex. And thank you, Zubin. Really, really, really enjoying the conversation so far. And, and Alex took my main reflection from the conversation. There were many, but I, I think that whole randomness is something that comes up over and over again with many guests. So it's entrenched in my memory now. Wanted to shift the conversation to talk a little bit more about Singapore and Singapore's healthcare ecosystem. In the New York Times column that I read called Make America Singapore, Ross Dudat called it, quote, the marvel of the wealthy world. And according to Vox, uh, Singapore's healthcare is quite possibly the only truly universal healthcare system in the world based on the idea that, you know, patients, not insurers, should bear the cost of routine care. However, it's not a free market in the traditional sense, but largely a state-run uh, healthcare system where the government designed the insurance products with a healthy appreciation, as I understand, for free market principles. And I'd imagine that such a system is a good bedrock for you know, innovation and merging you know, healthcare and technology. And you mentioned that you had done some pro bono work with Singapore's Ministry of Health on their telemedicine allocation reconciliation system that subsequently became the default platform nationally for use by Singapore's foreign workers. Um, so can you share a little bit more about your experience with the Singaporean uh, healthcare ecosystem? What are the characteristics that truly make it unique on a global level? Sure. So a, a few questions there, I, I suppose. Let me let me try to address them all. Um, I guess the first thing that I'll say is I am not a health economist, okay? But I'll give you a bit of a perspective of our, of our system. So we are very unique and different. 
Um, in fact, so unique and different that I think a lot of people agree that there is no other healthcare system and financing model anywhere in the world that is exactly like ours. And that's true. And it's because we looked around, our government has always been forward thinking and, you know, did a lot of work looking at different healthcare systems and taking the good and bad and ensuring that we have more kind of good components than, than bad. And when I say bad, I'll give you an example. When I moved back, I mean, having been in Ireland and UK, where essentially public healthcare is free, right? I mean, free, but we, we pay tax, obviously, and we pay a very high tax, but it essentially is free if you go in for care. I had personally always believed that a healthcare system should be free, right? And that was my idealistic side coming. And we talked about business earlier, right? And I think one of the things that I've learned having moved into the, if you want to call it the business side of things, is that it's a fine balance that you need to achieve, but that is very, very difficult. And if you look at the UK, I mean, many of my friends and colleagues are still there and I still speak to them on a regular basis. There have been a lot of problems when, because you've completely put a free system, right? It can get abused. There's no end to, to what you, you do. Often, you know, when you're in a rush, you don't think about the cost aspect. And, you know, I'll give you a very, sorry to detract a bit, but this is a personal story that I just remembered. When I first moved back, my wife cut her finger at home. I was working at the university hospital. I went in, there was a long uh, queue in the emergency department. All I needed was some chlorhexidine and a piece of gauze, and I wanted to clean it and put a little Band-Aid on it, right? So I went and I, and this was when I first came back and I was working in the emergency department. I took literally one packet of chlorhexidine, a piece of gauze and some, I think one of those small like crepe bandages, right? And I, I, I went, I, I cleaned it up and then we left, right? I got into huge trouble the next day. A nurse complained to the head of department who pulled me aside and and he wasn't rude or, or anything. He just pulled me aside to explain that, listen, you can't do that. And my initial thought was, well, what's the big deal, right? But then I started reflecting and he explained that, you know, everything needs to be accounted for. It's a small thing, yes, but you know, there's a cost, there's a process. If something does go wrong, you know, where do you draw the line? And it got me thinking and I was like, actually, that's so true, right? And then when I reflected back to my time in Ireland and the UK, because of that, we don't think about it, right? Simple thing, you walk in, you, you tear open a packet of gloves, right? And it, you need to be sterile, but it hits the door frame on your way out. And you know, you just throw it away and you pick up another pair of gloves and you open it without thinking, right? So I think because of that, <clears throat> in Singapore, um, <clears throat> the government realized that, you know what? You can't have a completely free healthcare system. But I would also like to say that what the way you described it is not completely true either. It's not that patients pay, you know, for everything. The government still heavily subsi uh, subsidizes the cost of care when you go into the public system. You do co-pay as a patient, but even when you co-pay from our salary in Singapore, if you're a citizen or permanent resident, we have something called the CPF, which is the Central Prov Provident Fund. Every month, uh, small percent of your salary goes into your CPF that you can't touch except for very specific things. And on top of your salary, the employer must also top up a certain amount that goes into your CPF. One of the components of CPF is MediSave, and you can use that for medical care, 
Okay. And in Singapore, we do have very good uh, tracking system of different levels of, you know, of, of social demographic levels and what people can and cannot afford. So ultimately, no one gets turned away for care, but everyone co-pays. But the amount you co-pay will vary. And on the whole, I, I like to still believe that it is affordable to most. Sure, it's not a perfect system, right? And we can always improve it. And the government is always trying to improve it. But generally, we believe in co-pay because it eliminates some of those things that I mentioned earlier, both on a patient front as well as a provider front, okay? Now, if we understand that, maybe one point to also add is what do doctors need to understand, right? What do MDs need to understand globally uh, in today's environment? And I think if I could summarize it, what we have seen in the last number of years is a convergence, a convergence of healthcare and the way we provide it, you know, then we converge that with health tech and med tech and biotech solutions, and then add pharma to the mix as well, right? And a lot of people use the term digital health. I think that's too broad a term, but we are seeing this convergence, right? And we must understand that technology is a really good and in fact, perfect enabler, not a replacer right? And that today, all our patients, regardless of which geography we're at, want better experiences, right? They want experiences that they get in other industries, right? But if we don't understand healthcare, med tech, health tech, pharma, biotech, the financing side of things, the business side of things, we will never be able to move forward, right? Because we just don't understand it and we're going to stick to what we know. And I guess the best example is, uh, I always give Bart Sex, my, my dear friend and colleague, Shafi Ahmed, who's the world's most watched surgeon. You know, he's based out of London. He started the Bart Sex curriculum in London where they put in finance modules, tech modules, you know, all sorts of modules to help medical students and doctors understand it. And I guess if I could summarize it the best, if we look even in Singapore, we have the smartest people in Singapore. We have scientists and academics and scholars across the public and private system, right? So no lack of uh, intellect, right? But why don't we see business models changing as quickly as we would like? Why don't we see really good health tech solutions being commercialized successfully and clinically adopted as we would like to see? The reason is because we have not matched the right business acumen, the health economic side, the finance side with the scientists or the clinician side. Once you do that, and I could go on for, for a whole day and you know I won't give you loads of examples that when you do match the right talent and people together, we see a much better solution and we see improvements in the system, right? When you do that. And I guess the last thing, Shad, and I think this answers then all your questions you just asked, you mentioned the TMAS platform that we were involved in building for, for the foreign workers during COVID and it, it was a pro bono project, you're right. Um, that is the perfect example of the value of a public and private partnership and success when you bring all the right stakeholders together. So what was unique about that? Um, the solution, I suppose, first of all, was agnostic to language. We wanted to build a solution 
uh, that could be used by all foreign workers in Singapore. And we have many, uh, you know, geographies where foreign workers come from, Bangladesh, China, Thailand, uh, you know. So language is, a, is an issue. Of course, most of them won't have the latest gadgets, right? So it needed to be a simple tech solution that could be used on older models of phones or iPads or other systems, right? Um, so it was agnostic to language. It was agnostic to the level of technology that people had. But what was most unique about it that caused it to be so successful was that it was a very, very collaborative solution with the way we built it. No one individual or entity said, I can do this all by myself. And we brought a whole bunch of people together, organizations. So in this case, um, we as PwC, I provided the clinical input. My colleague provided the IT architecture oversight. The Ministry of Health, obviously, it was their project. So they oversaw it. You know, AWS provided server space and the the foundation to run the, the analysis on. There was a data scientist who came in who did the coding from another organization. Uh, we worked with Singapore's IHIS, which ultimately took over the platform. Uh, IHIS is an entity that does all the health IT stuff across Singapore. And within eight weeks, that platform was built, right? And like I, like I said, it was very successful. It's seen more than a million patients now in the last year uh, plus. So I, I'd say that's what's unique about it. Thank you, Zubin. A lot of reflections, but uh, first of all, I want to say that I'm, I'm impressed by your ability to remember like the eight questions we throw at you at once. So I appreciate you just getting to all of them. Very, very insightful. I think the first thing I wanted to reflect on was the fact that you know, how Singapore curated, uh, you know, their healthcare system by looking outwards and trying to find the best from all the different countries. I sort of did this in my own life uh, with respect to culture and my beliefs. So I grew up in Bangladesh, moved to Canada. Now I'm in the United States. So I always tell people that I took, you know, I'm simplifying it a little bit. I did more than this, but I took like the loyalty from Bangladesh, the open-mindedness from Canada, and sort of this entrepreneurial, individualistic spirit from the U.S., and sort of amalgamated it together to create my own, so to speak, culture. So I really, really appreciate that perspective. Because, like, you know, why start over and make the same mistakes that other people have made, right? You can learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, and it doesn't just apply to people, right? It applies to people, corporations, industries, societies, countries, just looking elsewhere, seeing what's worked, what hasn't worked, being humble about it, learning about it, and then um, bringing it to your home. Another thing that's interesting is you, you mentioned that, you know, there's so much talent in Singapore and it got me thinking, I was having a conversation with a, an MBA buddy of mine and he was saying that just five, 10 years ago, most of the people who did their MBA, who wanted to leave the US, went to Hong Kong or London. Nowadays, apparently it's Singapore. So I just found that incredibly, incredibly fascinating. The last thing I wanted to uh, sort of reflect on is this notion of matching the right talent with the right people. This is just so spot on and, and something I think about a lot because there's a lot of non-overlapping insights in sort of niche pockets in the world. But you know, creative and fascinating things happen in the intersection of, you know, different insights, different industries. In our startup, you know, Alex and I are working on a startup called Sky Therapeutics. It's a digital therapeutics company creating, you know, therapeutic video games for a variety of different neurocognitive, uh, psychiatric, you know, conditions. Our first product is a video game for ADHD. And one thing that we've realized 
when delving into the ADHD literature is that there's a lot of pocketed insights in the neuroscience literature that the psychologists don't know and vice versa, and also the medical literature. And so once you bring all of these different things together, you know, very, very interesting things can happen. So yeah, I really, really appreciated all of those different points. And I think one of the last things you were mentioning is this notion of of the fact that like no one entity can do anything themselves. And, and so that sort of segues into my next question about teamwork and teams. If I recall correctly, Zubin, you attribute your understanding of the importance of teamwork and collaborative work to your experience of being a former national athlete in Singapore. We spoke multiple times on the podcast about the need to foster a better team dynamic within the clinical community. And I think the lack of sort of focus on cross-functional teamwork isn't due to like selfishness or anything like that, but due to the fact that medical education and medical training has historically been lacking on best principles when it comes to teamwork. And so some of our guests have learned the value of collaboration, whether you know from a side hustle or during their MBA or just learned it on their own. In your opinion, how important is it to shift the mentality of MDs to focus on working within a team, either within clinical medicine or just beyond clinical okay. medicine? One comment first before I answer that question. Um, the comment is, I while I attribute my kind of the way I believe teamwork to be important. It's not because I played hockey at national level, but rather I played hockey period. Um, so when I was really young and in school in Singapore, they do this psychomoto test and they suggest different sports that you might be good at when we're in secondary one. And I still remember that um, I was told you should go into running um, or uh, hockey or soccer. Right. And I chose I used to play soccer anyway before that. So I decided, let me try something new. So I joined hockey purely because I didn't want to do an independent sport because I just thought it would be boring and you don't get to work with people. So I think it's team sports or team events that helped me understand that, not necessarily the level at which you play it. Right. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the question you asked, I guess I'd first like to very respectfully disagree with your belief that in medicine and surgery, you said we don't do it well and we need to change the mindset to, um, you know, improve teamwork. I'm not sure, maybe I've just misunderstood you, right? But I've actually always believed that in medicine and surgery, we are very good at teamwork to a certain level, right? We certainly have a lot of ego in the medical and surgical fraternity across specialties and careers and individuals, no doubt. And, um, but if you think about it, at least everywhere that I've trained and when I was in medical school, there was always emphasis on a multidisciplinary approach, right? So even in orthopedics, if we had a cancer case, we'd join the, you know, the oncology, uh, you know, monthly discussions, right? And you'd put up your case and you'd work with other specialties. If you think of trauma, right? I, I did trauma and orthopedics, right? In the operating theater, we work with general surgeons, vascular surgeons, you know, um, plastic surgeons, orthopedic. That's all teamwork, right? So I actually think in medicine and surgery, we are very, very good at, um, good at that. Maybe we can be better, uh, but yes, so if your question was, do we need to change the mindset? I think we need to continue to um, ensure that that mindset is there. Maybe we can do it a little bit earlier to get rid of that whole ego and individualistic 
thought process, but I think we're generally pretty good at it already. Yeah, no, I appreciate your points. I don't know if that makes sense to yeah, you. Yeah, no, it certainly makes sense. And I think uh, part of my reflection is, is just based on uh, my personal experience in the limited ecosystem in Boston where I did the bulk of my training. You know, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking beyond just MDs or DOs and sort of working together. It was more than that, you know, working with pharmacists or NPs or PAs. If you go on Twitter, especially Med Twitter, there's a lot... Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on Met Twitter, but it can also turn into a lot of bickering back and forth between the different, oh, that you know, different types of clinicians, uh, between doctors and nurses, between yeah. doctors and NPs, and between NPs and PAs. And that's something that I've always found, again, maybe it's a privilege to say off-putting because I'm from the outside now looking in, but uh, it's something that I don't think helps society. It doesn't help healthcare. It doesn't help patients. Uh, and it certainly doesn't help us as clinicians. And so I think that's more what I was referring to, I would say. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I misunderstood. So yeah, 100%. You couldn't be more right. Shaz. Yeah, I appreciate your point, Zubin. And I certainly, you know, I just realized that perhaps it was more of a personal growth rather than anything emblematic of the different industries. But I learned a lot more about, you know, cross-disciplinary sort of interactions and working together when I came to business school versus when I was in medical school. And I think part of that was just because at HBS, you have all these different types of people who care about healthcare, but who are, you know, consultants, doctors, investors, engineers, lawyers, who for the most part may agree on the structural issues within the healthcare ecosystem, at least in the United States, but very much, you know, have different perspectives on how to solve them. And, and just working with them in a group setting was just absolutely you know, enriching for someone like myself. It really broadened my understanding of what solutions there are in the healthcare system. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. And, and that's why coming back to the example I gave earlier on Bart's X, right? So I, I do agree with you. I think it should be put in curriculums to show this, that, you know, a multidisciplinary approach doesn't just mean to the specific care of that patient. It means outside of our comfort zone, outside of our, you know, professional status, right? Um, and we're seeing so much workforce transformation globally that I think, you know, we're realizing that it's important to let people do more. We have to get out of this uh, traditional mindset saying that only, you know, a doctor can do this, a nurse can only do that, a advanced nurse practitioner can only do that. I think there has to be some some cross coverage and certainly that mindset needs to be changed at a curriculum level uh, earlier in, in med school and whether it's pharmacy school, nursing school, et cetera. So 100% agree with you. No, thank you, Zubin. I really appreciate your reflections. Just to finish us off here, and this has been a really, really fascinating discussion, uh, would just love any last advice you have for our listeners, you know, pre-meds, medical students, residents, fellows who make up the bulk of our audience regarding thinking more broadly about their careers. And if I could sneak in another question, I would just love if you can let our audience know how they can learn more about what you're doing and the impact that you've had and the impact that you'll continue to have. How can they learn more about all the amazing work that you've done and will do? Uh, I mean, the simple thing is you can just look me up on, on social media and, and Google me, uh, you know, at zubindarwala.com. But I think you know, it's more of self-reflection. Um, you know, I've actually been asking myself this question as well. Um, you know, how do we learn about what others do and then how do we apply it to ourselves? Um, recently, I was reading this book called Ikigai 
Um, I don't know if you've heard of this term. It's a Japanese term, kind of, you know, you know what your purpose, meaning, your being is, right? And I think uh, rather than say, how can people get to know me more? I'd say, how do you get to know yourself better? And how do you maximize the value that you can bring? And I think it's four, four things, essentially. Um, you have to first ask yourself, what do you love doing, right? And this is whether it's work, whether it's sport, whatever, right? What do you love doing? Um, then ask yourself, what are you good at? Uh, and sometimes that's a really difficult question to answer. We think that we're good at something, but actually we're not. Um, that was a, a big learning for me across the last 20 years in, in different aspects. And then ask ourselves, what does the world actually need, right? And then lastly, if you are in a position where you're thinking about your career, what you do, you then ask, what can you be paid for uh, when you put all this together? Uh, and I think then you kind of figure out, you know, the journey that you, that, that you go. But maybe I'll end with one other favorite quote that was told to me by a gastroenterologist in Ireland when I was an intern. Um, and he said, Zubin, uh, and, I, and I don't know if this was his quote. A lot of people have said this quote uh, over the years, but he told me, Zubin, um, I don't have a job. You know, when I wake up in the mirror, I'm happy uh, to go to work. He says, if you love what you do, you will never have to go to work a single day in your life. And uh, I've kind of tried to live by that. So, yeah. No, I absolutely love that, Zubin. And I promise you, I'm not making this up, but... Uh, during my medical school interviews, I actually, you know, talked about the confluence of like, because people, they always ask, like, why are you applying to medical school? Why do you want to become a doctor? And so my go to answer was, you know, this framework and this Venn diagram of, you know, stuff that I'm good at, you know, what society needs and like what, what I really, really enjoy doing. I didn't have that fourth element, which is what I can get paid for. But that's a very, very good fourth circle, I think, to add to one's Venn diagram. Too idealistic. <laughs> Too idealistic. I, I was 10 years ago. And, and my, my dad, my late, my, 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 my late father used to say, because I, I used to be very, very idealistic. I'm less idealistic now. My late father used to say in our 20s, we're very idealistic or we're idealists. And then when we when we get into our 30s, we become realists. Yeah, I think realists is probably a good compromise because I think if you go any further, then you just become cynical. And that's probably not not, not the way to go. Uh, I think the last thing I wanted to reflect on, Zubin, is I loved how you turned the question around into a sort of self-reflection because I sometimes have audience members reach out to me who say, hey, I love your podcast, awesome guests. And they're, let's say, like 20, 21 years old and I'm 30. So they say, you know, in 10 years, how can I be where you are right now? And, and I always tell them that's the wrong question to ask, right? Like you have to not, not, not find one or two people and try to follow their path. You need to figure out what you enjoy doing, what you're good at, the framework that we talked about and pursue that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better, Shane. Yeah, no, thank you, Zubin. And, and this was, again, a really, really fantastic conversation. I think our audience is going to absolutely love this episode. I just wanted to thank you for taking the time for joining us and really, really, really appreciate it. And you're welcome back anytime. Thanks very much, guys. It was great talking to you. Have a great day. Thanks again. Thanks, Zubin. We really enjoyed it.
Wow, that was a really a great conversation with Zubin. Really, really enjoyed it. Lots of takeaways. But one thing that I wanted to focus on is the fact that, you know, we spoke about different healthcare systems during this episode and the notion of learning from each system to create a proficient one that works on all cylinders. And so we talked about the Singapore healthcare system, the one in the US, and then what each can learn from one another. All this got me thinking about the way humans learn from one another, how we can learn from our previous experiences, and how we use those to navigate our daily lives and make decisions. We all do this subconsciously, and I don't think it's controversial to state that we are, you know, in some sense, the product of our interactions and influences. But I think it's important to think about this process in an active way, uh, not just in a subconscious way, so that we can maximize its impact. So what I like to do whenever I'm trying to solve a problem, whether on the personal side or in my professional realm, is I like to go out there and seek as many diverse viewpoints as I can. So let's say I want to learn about the emerging field of digital therapeutics. What you don't want to do, in my opinion, is just speak with digital therapeutics entrepreneurs because you know you'll only get a somewhat narrow perspective. You want to speak with regulators, clinicians, investors, entrepreneurs, people who believe in the space, people who don't believe in the space, young, old, everyone in between. In parallel, I try to do my own research as well. And that primary research, as well as the discussions with other people, create, like, lead to, you know, the creation and constant iteration of of insights. I also mentioned during the podcast that I grew up in Bangladesh and Canada and now in the U.S. and, and the cultures in each of those countries and regions are quite different. In fact, I would always joke around, and there's some truth to this, that it was a bigger culture shock for me when I moved from Canada to the American South than it was between my move from Bangladesh to Canada. But what I fundamentally tried to do is take what I perceive that is the best from each culture and merge it into my own, whether it's sort of the loyalty from Bangladesh or the open-mindedness in Canada, the individualism and, and the focus on freedom of speech in the U.S. I think that if you do a good job during this process and you do it actively, what I've found is that come out the other end as a very knowledgeable and thoughtful person that people respect, basically the opposite of, uh, you know, fake it you know, till you make it type of person. So that was my takeaway from the conversation. It's a little bit abstract and generalized, but I think it's important nonetheless. And it's important to, you know, whatever we do, you know, this whole process that we do subconsciously to try to do it in a more active and intentional way so that you can use it for maximal impact. But I'll pass it over to Alex now for his takeaways. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chad. Great one. So, On my side, I was thinking back to the part of the conversation where he said that the way he was introduced to MyDoc, the company that he ended up working with, was through an old uh, schoolmate with whom he was catching up. And, you know, that made me think about and reflect about the importance of maintaining and nourishing relationships and networks with people and uh, with colleagues in areas different than our direct field of work, where we naturally interact with our colleagues. We usually talk about emerging kind of topics and recurring themes on our podcast. And I think one of those recurring themes is that our guests usually mention that important professional opportunities come up serendipitously through their networks and connections that they've built during school, college, or during their first job. And I remember back during the MBA and the Rhodes experiences, many of the older alumni mentioned that the key professional opportunities in their life came up from friendships that they've developed early on uh, during school or during their studies. So this episode generally was kind of a reminder 
of the importance of continuously nourishing those relationships and, you know, being a giver rather than being a taker. So that concludes the takeaways from my side, but to the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast, and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.